Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to keep myself entertained, visit with people that I'd love to know but have not had a chance to meet because we're always traveling in different directions, and uh, just share information with everyone. Um, the webinars have been really fascinating and just uh, I just and have enjoyed all of my guests so much that some of them I asked to come back. Um, and today my guest is Nick Barker. We had a talk about hooves and she talked about her program, her rehab program, and then she mentioned that she talks a lot about nutrition. So everybody was really excited to hear that. Um, so welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining me again. You Thank you for having me again. Yeah. So, so Nick, for those people that haven't watched the first webinar, can you just give us a little bit of your background and how you wind, wind up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. I'll apologize first because I don't know how great my internet connection is this evening, but um, it's six o'clock here. But anyway, um, so if it goes a bit fuzzy, I will just plow on and hope that Wendy can fill in the gaps. Um, <laughs> So I run a, a facility in the UK, in the southwest of the UK, for um, horses with navicular type lameness. So a lameness that blocks to a palmodigital nerve block. And then on MRI, it usually shows up as either deep flexor tendon, collateral ligament, or related uh, injuries within the hoof. Quite often there's a multifactorial um, pathology. So uh, horses come here, we have them here for 12 weeks. And we aim to get them back into work and send them home, um, hopefully vastly improved from how they were when they arrived. Um, we do all of that with them out of shoes. And what I really quickly realized as I started doing this is that the, the most fundamental um, part of a healthy hoof uh, and, of course, of a healthy horse is a nutritional foundation. And you have to get that right. Um, as the base building block for everything else that you do with a horse. Um, and I think it's a particular challenge with horses because a lot of the ways that we keep them are in direct um, competition with what they would do in the wild. So it can be very difficult sometimes to get nutrition as good as it would be uh, easily for them if they were roaming much bigger areas. So um, nutrition as a, as a building block for hoof health is where I started. Um, and what I again found out over years of dealing with different horses is that what is good nutrition for feet is actually good nutrition for the whole horse because it allows them to function in a in a kind of uh, what's the word a, a bio, biologically appropriate way um, and so you tend to get less of the other problems you get less issues with metabolic problems you get less issues with colic you get less, less problems with things like tying up so it's it's kind of a it's nice to start with the hooves but if you get the hooves right everything else kind of falls into place as well so i think it's a, a useful um a useful subject for all horse owners to know a lot about because it's it's so fundamental and it's an easy thing to get right but it's also an easy thing to get wrong mm. yeah and there's you know one of the things that i i find is that at least in the united states what's available is so varied between you know out Absolutely. west where it's super dry on the east coast we look like spring we literally look like may even though it's august yeah. and you know rain conditions and all of these factors these environmental factors that go into it but uh 
you know, I think what you're talking about is if we can at least understand what a solid foundation is, then we can make the choices exactly. with what we have yeah. available. Exactly. And of course, we all have challenges and we're, we're none of us able to keep horses in a perfect environment, but we can do a lot um, as with our own nutrition. You can do a lot with what you have and and from um, from very, very damaging to very, very um, optimal uh, is, is well within our control most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. So the picture behind me is my front lawn, but this is what our pastures look like right now in August when they're supposed to be all dry and burned out and no grass. Oh, ours look like that all year yeah. round. <laughs> oh, good. So then, you, yeah, so then you can relate because it's, you know, the it's uh, been raining. We got, I don't know how many inches of rain last night. Uh, of course, you're, you're used to being wet all the time, but we're supposed to dry out. We here have a lot of rain. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, we so, never dry out. So you're so this is great because at least I know I can relate to your environmental conditions because they're similar <laughs> to mine right now. Um, well, but I'm, I think we have that we have quite difficult conditions like you have, Wendy. So so um, very very lush green grass is a challenge. I mean it's great in some ways. It's great if you have thin horses that you want to fatten up, but it's not great in other ways. And it is a bit like um, it's a bit like I guess the environment for. Uh, our own nutrition nowadays where it's very easy to eat food that is not terribly good for us in a large quantities and horses yeah. are no different without the yeah. exercise that can go with it to burn it off <laughs> even with the exercise sometimes it's just too many donuts isn't it for yeah. horses. <laughs> too many donuts all right so let's dive right in what are the basics that we need to know okay Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a presentation and I'm going to share my screen with you guys because it just makes it slightly more interesting. And I'm hoping that you just get the keynote presentation. Yep. Here we go. Okay, so I haven't got a huge number of slides on here, but I just wanted to cover some basics. Um, so... I like to think of nutrition as being um, the foundation. So nutrition is, if you think of, think of uh, horse health and hoof health as an iceberg. So nutrition is, is, it's not quite nine tenths, but it's a huge part of the iceberg. And you really don't see it. You only see it when, you only see when things go wrong. Um, obviously movement is essential for horses, not just for their hooves. Again, I came to this from a hoof point of view, but it's also essential for their bodies. They're designed to move just as we are. And uh, again, the sort of lifestyle that we create for our horses very often doesn't always give them enough movement. So again, anything that we can do um, to tweak their environment, their domestic environment to increase movement is great, but you have to get the nutritional foundation there first. Um, another thing that I'm, I'm starting to bang on about more than I used to, because I see it uh, here a lot, um, is horses being kept on their own. Um, this is nothing to do with nutrition, but it is to do with overall horse health, so I'm gonna mention it anyway. There's been a trend in recent years in the UK, and I don't know if it's also a trend with you guys, for people to keep horses in quite small um, partitioned paddocks in ones, basically, with maybe another horse next to them, but not in groups. And I think that is extremely damaging to horses um, for a whole variety of reasons. 
it reduces their movement. It causes obviously a lot of mental and emotional stress on them. Um, and it's a trend that I don't know, quite know where it's come from. It's sort of insidiously crept up in the UK. Um, and it's something that I would like us all to start challenging if we can, because I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a very good, uh, good trend at all. Um, and then I know, back to I know I in saying, this country, Nick, there's a yeah. lot of concern about a horse being injured. you like, you have a horse that's fairly valuable or a show horse and hmm. so they don't want anything to happen to it. So those horses get more exactly. isolated exactly and that's exactly the reason here so somebody's got a nice dressage horse or a nice event horse and they've spent quite a lot of money on it and they're keeping it in quite a fancy livery yard and so actually the whole sort of economic side of things mm. is quite large sums of money um but i think we've i don't know where this idea came from that if you keep horses in groups they injure each other because in my experience and you know i'm not horses in groups all the time but I, I every few weeks am introducing new horses into the into the herd so that is happening regularly all through the year so I've got a very um, you know potentially very unstable herd dynamic and potentially um, a situation where horses would be injured a lot and actually you know touch wood touch wood um, although I'm very careful about introducing horses it doesn't happen they are not out to injure each other each other at all um, we have rugs getting ripped and we have, you know, just nipping. They are in group, the less likely I think they are to do each other damage because the only times I've had real problems integrating horses is horses who've been kept on their own and have basically become a little um, unbalanced because they are so isolated and so stressed that they've forgotten all of the normal social mm. cues and they can no longer react appropriately to other horses. Um, if anybody's interested, and I think I mentioned it in the, the, the second book I, I put out, there's a really interesting uh, YouTube video which was put together, I think by the Swiss National Stud, when they had a whole group of stallions that had previously and there were new welfare laws in Switzerland and they were um, experimenting with turning them out together. And it's a really fascinating video because there's a huge amount of, there's a, there's, I think it's kind of like 10 or 12 stallions all brought into a field and you know, released as far apart from each other as they could. And of course, there's all sorts of noise and squealing and uh, apparent mayhem, but there are no injuries. And within a few hours, it's all very peaceful and very quiet and very laid back and relaxed and very happy. So I think it's a really good point that you make, Wendy, that people fear injury. But in my experience, the things that the, the number one things that I know injure horses, number one is having shoes on. They do each other a lot of damage with shoes on and completely unintentionally. And they can also injure themselves quite badly, um, you know, cutting their legs, slicing tendons. Um, so a, a shod horse is always going to do more damage than a horse which is unshod, which is one of the many reasons that I would never shoe my own horses and I won't have shod horses here. Um, so shoes are really dangerous and do definitely cause injuries, but that's nothing to do with horses being in a group, that's shoes. And I think the other, um, the other potentially very dangerous area that certainly we in the UK are very bad at, and I, I suspect it's, it's true everywhere that horses are kept, is people are very, very um, cavalier about their fencing. And so there are mm. lots of horses kept in places and in conditions where fencing is dangerous, and that will lead to injury. And again, it's nothing to do with horses being in groups. It's nothing to do with, um, you know, the horses themselves. It's the fact that if you have unsafe fencing, horses will get tangled in it, they'll get cut, they'll get injuries. Yeah. So I think 
if you have safe fencing and if you have horses with no shoes on, um, then you know those and are the sufficient space for the horses. Ways the other to stop thing. horses injuring themselves, and they are so much happier in the group. Yeah. So, you know, if you have sufficient space, in other words, if you're if you're putting too many horses together in a small area and they have an argument, they usually wind up running into something, you know, but if there's it, enough that's space. That's true. Yeah. And they, I think it's important. I mean, again, we're getting slightly off nutrition here, but it's important okay. if you're using things like tracks, which I'm very fond of, that you have, if you have narrow areas, you have large rounded areas where horses can break out. Because, I mean, again, the other thing I see here is I have, um, when I have horses on the tracks, they do, they cluster together in, in, they don't spread themselves out evenly. You'll have six horses in one small yard within a, you know, 50 foot area and they've got the entire track. So they do like to cluster together. But as you say, as long as if they have a spat, they've got space to move away from each other. It doesn't cause a problem. Right. Anyway, I'm laughing so, because um, in an arena, you better crack on the nutrition. Riders, so, right? so, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, one of the reasons, um, when I started this sort of journey off, for want of a better word, I thought that it was all about hooves. Um, and the reason I got into nutrition very quickly is because hooves are an absolute magnifying glass for the overall health of the horse. So uh, as a rule, uh, a lot of um, health problems in horses will show up first in the feet. So, um, particularly with, when you have a horse that's working without shoes, uh, any sort of uncomfort, discomfort over stones is generally a health problem or a metabolic problem. Any sort of um, uh, upset or, or toxin can also cause a hoof problem. So, a virus can do that, uh, a series of inoculations, a very, very aggressive course of um, dewormer that can all show up as a, as a foot problem or a lameness. Um, and I'm not talking about anything as extreme as laminitis because one of the joys of having a barefoot horse is that you get an early warning sign. So you will um, notice very quickly if the horse is less capable than it was previously. And you uh, can spot problems much earlier in my experience than you can in a short horse, which is another great reason for having um, horses out of shoes so I would I would say that all the nutrition stuff that I'm covering applies both to short horses and barefoot horses but it's more important for a barefoot horse because you need a horse to have absolutely optimum tip-top hoof health if it's going to work really hard without shoes so I think everybody knows or hopefully everybody knows that um, the vast majority of a horse's diet should be forage so that's hay or haylage or grass um, for, for an awful lot of horses, an awful lot of leisure horses, riding horses, they really need almost nothing else apart from minerals. Um, we have a big tendency to overfeed horses like we overfeed uh, most of our other pets because we like to feed them um, and they love to eat. You know, like us, they like to eat things that aren't necessarily good for them. Um, but the vast majority of a horse's diet should be forage. Um, that's absolutely essential for gut health. Um, it's essential for normal behaviour as well. So um, it's quite often overlooked because um, people know that forage is important, but don't necessarily realise what a massive proportion of the horse's calorie, protein, minerals is coming from forage. So if, if you're having a persistent problem um, with your horse or with your horse's hooves, 
and you can't get to the bottom of it, it may well be that it's your forage that you need to analyse uh, and, and try and assess the sugar levels in it and the mineral levels in it. And that's something that you can usually do very easily through um, agricultural feed stores. So mineral levels, again, I think um, when I started off uh, working with barefoot horses, I didn't fully realise, and I don't think a lot of people fully realised how crucial um, a good mineral balance was to horses. Um, and we tended to think that as long as they looked sort of sleek and round, obviously they were getting everything they need. Um, and that's true probably in the sense of calories and protein, but uh, the vast majority of UK forage and the vast majority of US forage and actually the vast majority of forage worldwide is deficient in some key minerals. Um, now exactly which key minerals obviously will depend on where you are um, mm. both in the country and where you are in the world. But uh, in the UK, um, there are broad trends and there are in the US as well, um, which you can easily get to the bottom of either by talking to local horse owners or by um, searching online. Um, it's, it, it's fairly, over the past sort of 10, 15 years, a lot of work has been done in this area and there's a, a huge amount of knowledge out there. So it's well worth getting to grips with that. Um, sugar levels. Uh, which is obviously the what Be Wendy's backdrop is perfectly showing us. Um, sugar levels in grass are a huge, huge issue for horses uh, in the UK and also a huge, area, a huge issue for, for horses in any area where you have the sort of grass that Wendy and I have. Um, for a long time, I couldn't understand why um, of my sensitive horses, they were absolutely fine eating our hay and our haylage, but um were foot sore on stony ground if they were turned out 24 7 on grass and i couldn't work it out because it seemed odd to me that exactly the same grass as grass was causing problems and yet as haylage or hay was completely safe um, but there is no doubt that fructan levels in green growing grass are uh, extremely high and extremely also extremely unpredictable um, so one of the things I always say to people is if you have any sort of foot problem, um, not just laminitis, laminitis is, is way down the track of a disaster scenario, but any sort of footiness, any sort of poor quality hoof, um, hoof wall, then looking at your grass and uh, the amount of access your horse has to it is useful. And it's a really easy thing to, to test because you can just take the horse off grass for a week, feed nothing but hay or haylage, and if you see a big difference in comfort levels, then you know that you need to do something with your grass. Um, so it's an easy thing to test, but it's, uh, it's, it's a fundamental problem in a lot of areas. We, so we, I, have, we have two questions that, let me just kind of jump in here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, video, so we'll do questions. <laughs> yep, so do you prefer giving mineral tubs or specified missing minerals? In other words, do you give a broad spectrum mineral type or maybe you'll get into this later? I'm going to get into it later. Um, I'll say two things about that now. Um, one is that if you know, if you have a consistent source of forage, so for me on my own land, um, it's well worth uh, getting a soil analysis and a forage analysis done because then you know exactly what you've got. Uh, that's not necessary for a lot of people because, as I said, there are broad trends and you can get there or thereabouts. Um, but it is worth doing if you've got the option. 
And the other thing is, I sometimes I get asked if if I use things like mineral licks or mineral blocks, and I don't because unfortunately, um, the sorts of minerals that tend to be deficient are not palatable. So they're not minerals that horses will choose to eat. Um, salt is an exception, but again, a lot of horses won't eat enough salt. So salt is about the only mineral you could provide as a free access block or a lick. But even with salt, I prefer to add it to feeds. And then I know that every single horse is getting their minerals. Um, in my case, I feed twice a day. So every single horse is getting their minerals twice a day. Um, but I wouldn't ever rely on a lick or a block because the problem is with unpalatable minerals that the only way you're going to get them to eat enough is by basically giving them a molast block which kind of defeats the whole point so it's a bit yeah it's a bit pointless um, but I will come on to minerals in a lot more detail in a moment okay. and we have another so question about muscle but I think you're going to come to that anyway so I'll, I'll hold it oh no but yeah no just throw it in now because we're okay. talking about grazing so that's fine. okay so uh the question is what time of day is best to let the horse graze with a muzzle um i heard that the grass in the track that she grazes to the to a nubble is worse than the pasture she gets with a muzzle so in other words you know yeah, when they're on a track they're eating it down yeah so there's two there's a couple of issues there one is that in a muzzle a horse can only pick up longer pieces of grass so they can eat long high fiber grass but not very much of it so you do have to be really careful that they're getting enough fiber if you're muzzling them and i would always say that they need some time out of a muzzle with some hay or some haylage so that they can get enough fiber into their guts um, the other thing is as a rule yes really short stressed grass is number one very high in sugar as a rule Number two is very low in fiber. So horses are obsessively eating it um, because they want the fiber, but they're also getting a lot of sugar. So it's a kind of double whammy. Um, uh, it's a tricky one because if you turn horses out in a field of, you know, a foot high lush grass, that can bring its own problems. But as a rule, longer grass is safer uh, and more mature grass is safer. Um, the question about a grass track, I know a lot of people use a grass track as a way of, you know, limiting um, access in a field and it's a really good idea. Um, but when I talk about tracks here, I'm talking about tracks which don't have grass on them because we use our tracks year round. We use them partly because our winters are so wet and we need well-drained turnout that isn't a field because our fields just become um, incredibly swampy and boggy and generally grim. Um, but yeah, a grass track is kind of useful in the summer as long as you're aware of the drawbacks. Right. So where's the middle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I put this table together just, it's, it's not supposed to be a rule for everything. It's not supposed to be, um, uh, it, it's a guide, it's got, what's the word from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? It's more like guidelines. So these are sort of general tips that I've found to be um, relatively safe, green, or relatively dangerous, red. Um, some of these are within our own control, some of them aren't. So pasture management, um, as a rule, if you have, um, we're very fortunate here, we have organic um, permanent pasture, which has never been plowed, it's not been reseeded, it's got a lot of biodiversity. That's incredibly helpful and horses love it. Um, if you have the option of, 
that sort of grazing and the ability to make forage from that sort of grazing that's fantastic because it will tend to be um, more biodiverse it will have um, a lower sugar level uh, generally um, a fairly low protein level it's more close to what horses would naturally eat and it gives them more variety and the ability to browse so that's great um, unfortunately a lot of pasture nowadays is more towards the red side so it's intensively farmed it can be uh, artificially fertilized reseeded it can be monoculture none of that is natural for horses or, or indeed any other animal um, so it's it's worth rather than just looking at a green sward it's worth if you've got the option and it's within your control having a think about what's growing there what's been done to it over the past 5, 10, 15 years. Um, if it's within your control completely, what can you do to improve it? Can you make it more biodiverse? Can you plant more different species? Are you able to put in um, shrubs and trees and hedges and bushes? Um, all of that is, is appreciated, not just by horses, but other animals as well. Um, mixed stocking, again, that's something that is, is rarer now than it used to be, but it's, it can be very useful if you have other livestock as well. Um, overgrazed pasture and short stressed grass is what you typically see in horse paddocks which I think is what we were talking about on the track and again it, it, it's, it's generally worse for horses than longer higher fibre um, higher fibre grass and then climate obviously is another one that we can't control it but it's something to be aware of so if you uh, have in the winter particularly a sudden really bright frosty day and you have a horse that's prone to laminitis obviously you need to be careful um, if you have, as we have now, uh, an August evening, which is relatively overcast and it's cool and it's cloudy and it's, you know, the grass has been growing happily for weeks, I'm happy turning my horses out earlier than I would normally. So you get to know your own horses and your own fields. And then factors relating to the horses specifically. Um, at this time of year, really for the whole spring and summer, I prefer nighttime turnouts because it works better for the grass that we have here. And it works better for other factors like you know flies and um, just the sort of general routine that we have. It doesn't work for everybody, but I've found that I can get away with um, horses being out on grass overnight in the spring and summer who wouldn't tolerate daytime turnout. But you have to play it by ear. And then work, uh, as with us, you know, horses need regular exercise. The more you can let them do it on their own, the better, because that's great and they enjoy it. Um, but the more you can factor in um, any sort of mileage, any sort of challenge, particularly it's great for feet, but it's good for minds and it's good for muscles as well. So it's nice for horses to work and to go out and you know have a different view, see a different part of the world. Even here, we even take our young horses out, we take them out led from another horse and they get to sort of see the roads and see the traffic and see you know the wider world. So I think it's, Good for them and it certainly helps them to build muscle without um, necessarily having somebody um, bobbing about on their backs and then uh, I've put in other risk factors I've put robust hard-working feet because what I found is um, through with the rehab horses that you can have a horse who is very footy on stones has very flat feet has you know shelly hoof or blah 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 all sorts of issues and if you get the diet right and you're careful with your grazing and they grow a really healthy sound foot then over a period of 
a year or two years as they continue to have great feet, then they are much more robust generally and they can cope with things that they couldn't cope with before. So you have a bigger margin for error. So for instance, we had one horse here who, who always was super sensitive to grass, but once we got her diet absolutely spot on and she'd been you know, working hard uh, out of shoes for a, a couple of years, then suddenly she could cope with all sorts of stuff that was difficult before. So mm. a good basic health, overall health and fitness is a really, um, is a great thing to aim for. Um, feed and minerals, uh, minerals are really complementary to grazing. So if you've got um, more of the red stuff, you need to get your minerals even better. If you've got more of the green stuff, you may have a bit more margin for error. But the more you can um, manage your pasture to get it edge it towards green and the more you can feed your horse a brilliant balance of minerals um, the easier you will find it to have a really healthy horse and then metabolic issues obviously if you have a horse with insulin resistance or Cushing's or EPSM or PPID you know you've been thrown a huge curveball um, and there are other other factors that you need to be um, aware of but also unfortunately all of this becomes even more important. So anyway, this is my little sort of um, banging on the drum, partly for anybody who's got their own land. Um, if you have got your own land and you're fortunate in that respect, then do treasure your biodiversity. And if you've got land that has no biodiversity, do try and increase it because it is so important. And it's one of the things that I've, um, I've treasured the longer I've lived here. Um, it's incredibly useful to have a large diversity of plants in your hay, on your haylage or your forage. And it's incredibly difficult and very, very dull for horses if all you've got is ryegrass or all you've got is Timothy or all you've got is Bermuda. So um, clearly if you're in a livery, livery yard or a yard where you're having to buy and forage, there's not much you can do about it. But even in those cases, it's probably worth I think, talking to whoever supplies your hay and say, is there some hay that's come from an old meadow? Because if we don't ask for these things as consumers, we won't get them. And if we can create a demand for the sort of hay that was around, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, then it's not only great for our horses, but it will be really great for biodiversity in farmland in general. So as part of a wider um, ecological approach it's 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 so worth doing um, I'm not going to talk too much about haylage because it's not something that you guys use very much in the US we have it here all the time because of, because of our incredibly wet climate um, so for you I think it's more likely to be hay than haylage yeah. um, and really with hay the biggest issue is dust and spores so um, and sugar levels as well actually all of which, if you're either soaking or steaming hay, um, it can be helpful. And particularly if you've got horses that are either footy or prone to laminitis, then reducing your sugar levels can be, can be really essential. Um, there's one thing I will say though, for people who are in wetter climates, which is um, if you have forage that's been treated with mold inhibitors, um, that can be a real problem because it's quite insidious. So, we had some horses that were being looked after by a colleague of mine who had always been fed the same hay from the same farm and had been doing brilliantly. And then he rang me one year and said, they've all started going footy and I don't know why. 
and nothing has changed. Um, and one thing that you know, if horses start going footy, is that something has definitely changed. But what you have to do then is become a detective and try and piece out, piece together what it is. And it can be, as I said, it could be a vaccination, it can be a dewormer. But in this case, it was that the forage for the first time ever had been treated with a fungal inhibitor. And it had basically <laughs> made the horses footy. And of course, if he hadn't, if he hadn't been able to work that out, they would have carried on feeding the horses the same forage and carried on having the same problem. So do be careful if you're in an area that looks a bit more like Wendy's than, um, than, than a drier part of the world, because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sneaky little thing which can be um, causing problems. Were there any more questions there, Wendy? Um, yes, there's one. I'm not sure this is the right time for it. Uh, how long are you exercising rehab horses for each session? And does it depend on the horse? It's kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It depends on the horse. Um, and it depends on what stage they're at. So they start off with maybe only 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, by the time they go home, they're usually working for four or five times a week for about an hour and a half each time. Um, and then they build up when they go home. And then there's um, another so again, question. Um, <coughs> would you consider grass hay testing at least at less than 10% ESC to be relatively safe? And if you could define ESC, that'd be great. Uh, uh, I can't define ESC because um, I'm out of, I'm slightly out of date with my testing because I'm fortunate enough to have my own land. I don't test um, very often because my mineral levels stay consistent and so do my protein levels and sugar levels. ESC um, and is also simple because we make hay Yeah, but because we make haylage here, we don't make hay. Oh. One, of the, one of the factors of haylage is that it has a lower sugar level straight away. So you can make the same grass into either hay or haylage, but right. haylage has a low sugar level and a high protein level. Hay has a high sugar level and a low protein level. So we don't tend to test for it um, because we don't use hay. Um, but certainly if I had any sort of um, metabolic issues, I'd be wanting to, to look at lower than 10%. And if not, I'd be soaking it. Um, and if I was still having problems after soaking it, then I would be, that's when I would be looking at a more detailed mineral analysis to see if there was something that was really out of whack. So um, going on to minerals, because it's quite a big area, um, almost all horses need additional minerals because almost all forage is deficient. Um, in the UK and in the US, the ones that we mostly supplement are magnesium, copper, zinc and selenium. And that's partly because we are low in copper and magnesium and zinc and some areas are low in selenium but it's also because we tend to be high in iron and molybdenum, which mm. inhibit copper and magnesium uptake. So if you're either high in iron and molybdenum or low in magnesium, copper, zinc, then you know you need to supplement. And most areas are to a greater or lesser extent. Um, the problem of course is that you don't know until you test how high or low <laughs> your levels are. Um, which is why it can become a lottery. There are certainly in the UK two or three really good supplement manufacturers who, who produce um, 
supplements with a really good level of minerals, but they are the exception rather than the rule, and it will be the same in the US. So the vast majority of off-the-shelf minerals will not give you what you need for a healthy hoof, let alone for a healthy rest of the horse. So um, you would probably need to do a certain amount of asking around. Ellen Kellen's site is great for you guys in the US. Um, she has a huge amount of good resource and a huge amount of information on there. And there are also a lot of people who will do uh, local testing for you and will give you recommendations for your specific area. So I'm going to quickly talk about the minerals that we feed here, which will also be the minerals that you guys will need to feed, um, I'm almost certain. So magnesium and salt are the easy ones. Um, and the reason they're easy is because you can't go wrong with them within reason. Because if you feed too much, the horse will regulate the amount itself and just pee out the excess. So with magnesium and salt, you are much, 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 much safer to feed extra than not feed enough. Because if you're not feeding enough, you'll have a whole host of problems. You'll certainly have foot problems and you'll certainly have horses who are footy on stones. But you can also have problems with um, heart function. You can have problems with muscle function. You can have problems with, you know, a whole range of metabolic functions. Um, so both magnesium and salt, I would always feed to every horse. Um, and at this time of year, I'm feeding. Um, two 50 ml scoops of magnesium to every horse and two 30 ml scoops of salt to every horse and you just put um, that in their food so that they're that they eat it you don't offer exactly it. yeah i put it in food and i mix it up with something wet so that and and it is really important to feed straight away because um as i said none of these minerals are very palatable and if they sit around in feed especially in hot weather you can actually smell it yourself and it starts to starts to smell just a bit metallic and not very nice. Um, so feed it straight away. Um, so magnesium and salt are really safe. They're really important. And most forage will be deficient in it. Um, and if you're not sure, then go and find somebody who's got cattle and sheep and ask them if they feed magnesium. And you will almost certainly find that they do. And that if they don't, cattle and sheep start to keel over and die. Um, so it's, it's a very, very important mineral and it's often overlooked. Um, there was a question that came in about magnesium oxide. Um, magnesium oxide is a really easy form of magnesium to feed. It's widely available. It's very safe. It's, it's um, manufactured under the name of calcined magnesite, which Say is an agricultural form of magnesium oxide. Say it's it again. Called calcined magnesite. C-A-L-C-I-N-E-D, M-A-G-N-E-S-I-T-E. And it's basically agricultural feed grade magnesium oxide. Um, and as somebody said in the, in the question they posted, it's about 52 to 55% magnesium. Um, I feed it because it's widely available. And if I send horses home, I know the owners can find it. But also because it's um, a slightly coarser grade, it's actually easier to mix into feeds um, than very pure magnesium oxide, which is, looks a little bit like talcum powder and gets everywhere and coats everything. And horses generally find it a bit like eating a bowl full of cornflour. 
So um, personally, I, that's what I feed. There's nothing wrong with feeding pure pharmaceutical grade magnesium oxide, but number one, it's very expensive. And number two, it doesn't actually give you any more magnesium. So you get roughly the same amount of magnesium, so around 55%, um, no matter what form of magnesium oxide you feed. So hopefully that clears up the confusion. And don't make the mistake, I'm sure none of you would, but don't make the mistake, anybody, of thinking that if it's 99% magnesium oxide, it's 99% magnesium. Because obviously if it was 99% magnesium, it would actually explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those metals on the chart. Um, um, somebody is if asking I, if there's a difference between haylage and silage. Uh, yes. So basically the difference between hay, haylage and silage is moisture levels. So um, hay is less than, usually less than between 20, 10 and 20% moisture. Silage can be um, eight, 75 to 80% moisture and haylage is usually less than 60%. Those are very rough numbers off the top of my head. It, it varies slightly, but haylage is basically much drier than silage. And it's uh, less, um, less fermented and tends to be, uh, it's a kind of halfway house. It, it looks and it feels like hay, but it tends to be slightly greener. And it has a it has a distinctive aroma, but it's not as oh, yeah. strong silage. <laughs> it's uh, in Finland they feed mostly haylage, and you walk into the barns, and if you're not used to that smell, it's really pungent. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's probably closer to silage because silage is a very strong smell. Um, haylage is much closer to hay. It just smells oh. it just smells like a freshly cut meadow, but it's it's not as it's. Yeah, it's, it's a halfway house, basically. Okay. Um, the, the sort of rule here is that you, 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 you don't feed silage to horses if you can avoid it, because it tends to be, uh, tends to be a bit too, I, I, I would say rich, rich isn't the right word. It tends to ferment a bit too much for them. And it's great for cows. Horses like the taste of it, but it's not so good for horses as haylage. You generally want it a bit drier and a bit higher in fiber. But if you have cows, silage is fab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and somebody's asking, um, my metabolic horse avoids salt at all costs. How do I get them to eat enough salt? Well, I mean, you know, if uh, there's a few tricks. Um, so minerals as a whole can be a struggle to get down horses. Um, what I generally find here is that when horses first arrive, they don't like their feed of sugar-free health feed and they turn their noses up at it. But because they don't get offered anything else, and because basically we don't make a fuss about it and chop and change it, they just get presented with, you know, their normal breakfast, and if they don't eat it, it's taken away, and they get their normal dinner, and if they don't eat that, it's taken away. And usually by day two, or two and a half, they will start to pick at it because it's become more familiar. And then once it's familiar, it usually takes you know another couple of feeds and then they're usually scoffing the whole thing but there's a few things that make life easier number one is if you've got horses around your horse that are being fed a sweeter feed that can cause a problem so it's much easier if every horse in the barn is is on unmolassed um feed because understandably if the horse next door is getting something that smells really sticky and sweet your horse is going to be kind of like why can't i have what he's having instead of what you know boring stuff that you're giving me the other thing you can try, especially with magnesium and salt, is to introduce very small amounts first and then slowly, slowly build it up. 
if your horse won't tolerate that either, I would probably split it out and give the salt as a lick and give everything else in a bucket feed so that at least you know they're getting their copper, their zinc, their magnesium. Um, because that's really, really important. And then let them free choice the salt. Um, because they will, as a rule, if they need salt, they will take what they want. So you can, you're safer having salt free choice than anything else because they won't free choice magnesium for sure or copper and zinc. Um, so I would probably split it out so that you know that the stuff he needs to get, he's getting and the salt, he can take it or leave it. Um, so the next group of minerals that we feed all the time are copper, zinc and selenium. Um, these you have to be more careful with because um, you need to know that there's a deficiency before you feed. Now, in 99 cases out of 100, there will be a deficiency of copper and zinc. You might not have a deficiency of selenium. And you do have to be careful with selenium because an excess of selenium can lead to toxicity. So um, if you're not sure, I would use an off-the-shelf supplement and aim for... Um, aim for one that you know is recommended by people who have horses without shoes. <laughs> because the people who have horses without shoes will know their stuff about minerals. And if they have hardworking horses without shoes in your area, then you can be pretty sure that they've got their minerals right. So they will be able to give you um, names of people who do a good off-the-shelf mineral supplement. Um, in the UK, Equinaturals is very good. I mentioned them on the next page. And Progressive Earth are very good. Um, but I don't, off the top of my head, know of suppliers in the US but there will be some but you're looking for people who prioritize copper and zinc um, and possibly selenium if it's deficient in your area and you um, can do a blood test to find out about that um, selenium deficiency here so that's a great way to, to know if you need selenium before you start feeding it yeah but but also there should be um, certainly if you go to an agricultural feed store they may well have um, soil analysis for your area because it is very specific so for instance if you go to New Zealand it's chronically low in selenium and everybody feeds selenium in fairly large quantities but what you can't do is bring a New Zealand supplement to the UK and feed it here because you'll give your horse a selenium toxicity right. so you'll probably find that an agricultural store or even you know a friendly local farmer can tell you if you've actually got a selenium deficiency in your area um, because it's quite it's quite easy to measure so copper and zinc um, are very easy to supplement on their own they're in most off-the-shelf supplements but do be careful that you're getting one that feeds enough because a lot of um, standard balances for horses do not contain anywhere near enough copper and zinc mm. for hoof health um, as I said magnesium and salt is easy because you can just add that yourself it's cheap it's readily available but copper and zinc um do look at you know what you can get from um, feed merchants but be dubious that it will give you enough it probably won't so i wouldn't ever take an off-the-shelf mineral balancer for granted um if you go online and look at Equinaturals and Progressive Earth, they will tell you the levels of copper, zinc and selenium that they have in their balances. And then you can use that as a benchmark for what you're looking for with your own stuff. Um, because it's so important that you kind of want to go shopping knowing, knowing what, um, what you're looking for. So what I do with every horse here is 
feed them um, ad lib forage so they can have hay and haylage or grass 24 seven. Um, I feed minerals to every single horse twice a day. And that is actually enough for nearly all of them. So I don't feed much in their bucket feeds apart from minerals. But if horses are working extremely hard um, or they've got another need, they need to build up muscle or they're coming back from injury or whatever, then I, the only change I made is make is to add specific calories or protein. So I line up the buckets in the barn. They all get their minerals. They all get their, their uh, unmolasted beet, which is what I mix it with. And then I feed extra calories or protein just to those who need it. As a rule, um, it's safer to go for a low starch feed. If you're feeding cereals, oats is great. It's readily available. To what most people think, they don't turn horses loopy. Um, so they're a really good source of energy. Um, other good sources are for horses that are doing endurance or um, really long. Um, hard working days cool stones copper great um, micronized linseed meal is also great um, and all of those are also extremely palatable so again if you've got a horse that's not eating their minerals then it's well worth putting in a handful of cool stones a handful of linseed meal um, a couple of handfuls of oats and then you'll probably find that they find the whole um, the whole thing a lot more tempting than than they did before and the cool stones copper isn't that a rice based feed it's coconut based yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, that's right. That is available here. Um, it's uh, yeah. some of the problems we've had with the the beet pulp is that it's GMO, and you yeah, that's a big problem for you guys. Um, I use it here because I know ours isn't, but it is a big problem for you guys, yes. and I appreciate that. But again, I use it because I need to use stuff here that I can send horses home with, and that people can buy anywhere in the country. And I know that um, we have several brands of unmolasked beet pulp, but if I were in another place where beet pulp was dubious, I'd be looking for another high fiber, low sugar, wet feed, because that's basically what it is. Right. So you want something with enough flavor to disguise the minerals, a wet feed so that you can mix all the powdery stuff in and it doesn't get lost in the bucket. Um, but it can be anything you like. It can be anything you like. Oh, play my video. Oh, cool. And this is uh, for people that haven't seen your other webinar. This is the tracks you're talking about, right? Yeah, these are actually um, these are actually crushed limestone tracks, but we have very similar tracks here. Um, we we just happen to be filming at a reunion for our rehab horses, which is where this footage was taken. But our tracks at home are very similar, so they're a mixture of rock and um, packed earth, and they're generally for the rehab horses they're slightly more yielding than this um this was a you know like a farm track for vehicles um so we have some shingle on our tracks as well because it's it makes it more conformable for conformable for the rehab horses but our own horses don't need that so i think that's the end of my flick through this so i don't know if there's more questions so um i i have a question here. actually um yeah. so so one of the things that's commonly seen around here because it's so wet is contracted soles. So my question to you is, if we're seeing contracted soles, is that because of a nutritional issue? 
Yeah. Like, I, I, I would bet any money. So what you said to me was really interesting. You said, we're seeing contracted souls because it's wet. Now, I would query that because I know how wet we are here. Mm. And you know how wet we are here. We get yeah. more rain than anywhere else <laughs> that's true. in the UK. Um, and we do not have a problem with, with contracted souls. But what I repeatedly see is horses with contracted souls, flat feet, da 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 it's generally a not enough minerals problem is number one or too much sugar in the grass, number two. And, and looking at your lawn, it could even be a combination of those. Right. So again, you're throwing, you need to throw multiple solutions. You need to um, look at the pasture, reduce sugar if you can, maybe use nighttime turnout, maybe use a track, maybe use muzzles if you need to. Increase by, over the longer term, try and increase biodiversity and high fiber in your pasture. And then in the, short to medium and long term make sure that you're really throwing the minerals that aren't in your forage at your horses in decent quantities so i would be feeding a lot of magnesium because particularly when grass is high in sugar your magnesium levels are less accessible so you get a double whammy you get more sugar and less magnesium so you need to feed a lot of magnesium and you can do it safely so why not um, so i would be throwing a lot of magnesium at those horses and a lot of salt and then I'd be looking at copper, zinc, and possibly selenium as well. But for, for, <clears throat> for flat feet, thin soles, footy on stones, magnesium is, is the biggie, really is the biggie. Mm, interesting. Magnesium and sugar. And so, like, if you have a lot of moisture in your grass and stuff, do they tend to, to essentially pee out more minerals because there's so much volume? Like, in other words, if it's really wet grass that they're eating, so there's a lot more moisture going through them? I think they drink less. So my, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard for me to say because our growing conditions are fairly constant. So at any time of year, our grass is 90% moisture. Yeah, true. And sometimes it feels it's like 150% moisture. So the only time, I suppose in the depths of winter, if my horses are off grass and mostly eating hay or haylage, then the moisture level is lower. But even then it's like 50%. And when they're on grass, like they are at this moment it's 90 percent so they're getting less fiber for a start um and that is one thing i find is that when they come in they've had these you know nights in these beautiful green fields but they still want to eat haylage because there's fiber in haylage to a greater volume than those in grass so that gives them the fiber that they weren't necessarily able to get just from high moisture grass um but they'll tend to regulate you know, right. So they're not going to drink as much from a trough because they're already getting a lot of what they need in terms of moisture from the grass. Right. Yeah. And see here we in July, we were 100 degrees and we had a droughty situation. We went from burned out. I mean, at my, I came home and my gardens were just decimated. And then we turned around and we've been soaking wet. So we get these really... You, you know, get extremes, yeah. yeah. Whereas we tend to get constant wet, constant right. wet all year round. You get a lot more, um, a lot more extreme variation, and obviously nationally, you get a lot more extreme variation. Yeah, um, but certainly when you see green grass, you'll get high sugar, and yep. you know it just makes. If you think about the minerals, the minerals are an issue everywhere, but you can get away with your minerals not being great if your grass is bone dry, burnt to a crisp and you're feeding hay because ah. you don't have the magnesium challenge. Whereas once you've got bright green growing grass, you have a magnesium deficiency, which makes 
the whole um, sugar situation worse. worse. So you have a double whammy of lots of sugar, not enough magnesium. And that's why the same grass burnt to a crisp could be safe, but the same grass when it's green and growing and lush causes you issues. Got it. So we've got a couple of questions here. One is, so when you talk about biodiversity, is that many types of grasses or plants in general or both? Both, yeah. So, um, so it's, it's different types of grasses and different plants in fields. And again, we're quite fortunate here because our field boundaries are hedges. So there are also, you know, there's willow in the hedge and there's ash in the hedge and there's hazel in the hedge and there's, you know, goodness knows what else in the hedge, as well as sort of the shrubby stuff, basically. So the horses can browse as well as eat from the ground. And then our plant species in the fields are reasonably high. So we've got, I don't know, like in, in some of our really steep fields, we've got um, literally hundreds of different species yeah. in you know, in a field. Um, Which makes me think about, you know, I was in New Zealand last year and in the spring they have, uh, I've forgotten what they call it, but the horses all get a bit crazy and grass fever. I think they call it grass fever. It's very interesting, but their grass is very monoculture and it's really, really lush and you have to wonder how much fertilizer has been because cattle, Dairy cows actually has. I, I went they there in the have, 90s. Yeah, they have a lot of the. I was. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean they have. New Zealand is interesting because they have this. They have a completely different mineral balance to say the UK or the US. So they do have this very low level of selenium, but they also, as you say, they're they're primarily growing dairy cow grass, which is not great for horses. Um, and like us, they also have a long growing season and a wet growing season, but it's even longer than the UK one. So because it's a, a warmer climate, so it's equally wet, but it's warmer too. So it's, it's a kind of extreme version of the UK. Um, so they have a lot of the problems that we have here, but a different mineral um, issue. And they also have some quite unique, obviously unique plants because it's New Zealand and they have a unique, um, unique flora and fauna. Um, so there are there are specific New Zealand issues there for sure. Yeah. Um, there's another question here. It says we have a lot of mud here to combat the uh, to combat the wet. And most of us are owners of farms on smaller acreages, like minus five acres. Suggestions on making our land more foot friendly. We have a tendency to use a lot of stone to combat the mud. Yeah, I do too. Um, again, if we if we used a grass track here in the winter, it would just be a sorry, it would be grim and the horses would hate it. So what we tend to do is use our track in the winter as um, as well-drained turnout that will stand up to multiple horses all winter. And, and that does mean it's more work, but once you've done it, you've done it. So decent fencing, decent drainage, um, putting down some stone or some hardcore is fantastic. Um, and it's great for feet. It's really great for feet. So that would be on a, on a small acreage. What I would be doing is um, using a track to maximize movement, um, but also to um, protect the ground I've got rather than it just being churned up by horses. Let the horses go around the outside and then you can use the area in the middle um, for, you know, grass or hay, whatever you need to use it for. Yeah, and um, in some areas, like um, I saw it a lot in Switzerland, there's, um, it's called gravel pave is one of the names, but it's a, it's a plastic grid you can put down and then fill with stones so that you yeah. don't keep losing your base. Um, because, 
you know, if you have a lot of erosion, a lot of activity with the horses, and then you get rain. So. Yeah, no, that's true. Otherwise, you can use, and there's also all sorts of things that you can use. You can use a, a permeable membrane. If you dig out permeable mem membrane, then hardcore, and then top dress it. Um, but what I'd say is if you're doing a project like that, it's, it, it's the sort of thing that's worth doing properly, and it's worth doing a bit of planning, and probably talk to somebody who has experience of groundworks because um, it's really easy to chuck down a load of expensive top dressing and then lose the whole thing. So do make sure that you've got the, the foundations okay. right. So there's a little addition here, and I think you'll have a comment about it. It says the stone is wearing the soles and causing the feet foot soreness. Um, if we're using stone to combat mud, how do we uh, do the foot? How do the feet get relief? But I think you'll have a different perspective on that. Okay, so I think I think it's a fair point. So with the rehab horses that are here, um, when they come, they have not great feet. Uh, they have biomechanical problems primarily, but they also tend to have nutritional problems and flat feet and all the other sort of um, general hoof problems that. That horses have and for them it would be too much to be on stones 24 hours a day um, and so we don't ask them to be on stones 24 hours a day so a combination of things if, if you've got horses who have um, foot discomfort the immediate thing you need to do is allow them to be comfortable so they need an area of sand or an area of bedding or an area of grass or something that is more forgiving than stone for their feet but equally, if you get a horse to the point where its feet are really healthy, they don't really care about stones. Of course, they still need somewhere comfortable to lie down um, and they still prefer a variety of footings, but they won't find that the stone cause, you won't find the stone causes them problems. So it's a two pronged attack. So by all means, provide them with a sandy area or a well-drained, uh, you know, well-drained area where you can put down um, pea shingle or wood chippings or something that's more conformable. But if you look at your mineral levels, and particularly your magnesium levels and your salt levels, then you should find over time that your horse's hoof health improves and they become not uncomfortable on stones. So, so if I could kind of say the takeaway message from this talk is one, um, you can't overdo salt and magnesium and most likely your horse is deficient, certainly in magnesium, if you have any kind of foot problem. That's the number one thing I'm hearing right now. Um, but yeah, number one, number one. Go out and buy a big sack of cow mag and feed it to your horses. Yes, well, I think I'm going to do that <laughs> because it can't hurt. Yeah, it's, it's, safe, it's cheap. And it will, yeah, it can't hurt. One thing I would say is if, you, if your horse is low in magnesium or copper zinc, selenium, then you will need to feed consistently for at least six weeks before you see an improvement. So okay. you need to be looking at six to eight weeks. Um, so when I used to take horses out of shoes that weren't coming to me for rehab, what we would do is we would put in place a really, really good feed program for six to eight weeks while they were still in their shoes. And we would make sure their sugar levels were as low as possible, their mineral levels were absolutely spot on. And then they would come out of shoes and they would just skip off. They would hardly notice, they would just go. And the owner would carry oh, on working okay. with them and we would have no problems. So you need to have that really good nutritional base for six to eight weeks okay. before you will have a horse that has real competence on tough ground. And because you know what your mineral situation is there, you know, basically you're, you're feeding all your horses pretty much the same mineral balance then between the zinc, copper, selenium, magnesium, and salt. So I'm, I'm balancing my forage. Yeah. Right. So all I'm feeding is what my forage, what I know my forage is low in. Right. Um, so I'm being very specific. 
But if you can't be very specific, you can still feed magnesium salt anywhere to any horse safely. And then what you need to do is look for a really, really good off the shelf supplement that will do the copper zinc and selenium for you. Got it. And then, and then the other side of this coin is managing your sugars, whether that's muzzle, tracks, limited grazing, make sure they have enough fiber. Yeah. And you just have to work out what, what works for you. So I have horses going home to yards all over the country, all different routines, all different grazing. Most people can work out something that, that works for them and their horse. It's a real suck it and see, you know, Right. Um, can you say again how much magnesium and salt you you work up to? Obviously, you don't start there and dump it on there. Yeah. So um, at the moment, as a general rule, I'm feeding two times 50 ml scoops of calcium magnesite per horse per day. So 100 ml of calcium magnesite. Now that's a lot, and you have to build up to that slowly. So I, it's one of the reasons I feed in two feeds because you know. They're not going to eat calcium. all that minerals in once if you just pop it in front of their face, right? It would be like giving somebody a huge plate of nothing but broccoli or kale. Right. You know, you're not going to be able to chow through a plate of broccoli and kale. But if you have it, some with your breakfast and some with your dinner, that's a different matter. Right. And then with salt, I'm feeding uh, two thirty mil, two twenty-five to thirty mil scoops a day. Right. Yep. yep. Oh, great! Somebody just typed it in there. Awesome. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Yep, that was really great. I'm just going to copy. Perfect. That. Thank you, Janelle. That's really helpful. <laughs> it's uh, really helpful. All right. So, does anybody have any other questions here? Um, all I'd say, uh, all I'd say to Janelle's, um, the, the, Janelle's really helpfully put that down. If you're weighing it, if if you're doing it by volume, 50 mil is right. If you're doing it by weight, um, calcium magnesite is heavier than pure magnesium oxide. So it's easier to do it by volume than weight. And okay. the measures I've given are calcite magnesite measures, not pure magnesium oxide measures. Calcite, yeah, it's, um, and to type that in, let's see if I can do this. C-A-L. Yeah, I can type it in. Okay, that'd be great. <laughs> C-A-L, let me type it in for you. Hang yes, on. I took it out, I took me out. So, Go for it. Awesome. And you know, I mean, when you get down to it, it's so fascinating because it's like everything. You've got to make sure your foundation and your basics are right. And these are the foundations and the basics that you need to have right to get the foot right. So, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes we think it has to be more complicated and sometimes we overlook the simple things. I think a little bit of both. Exactly. And, and I think one of the one of the things I'd say is that if you if you get into the habit of feeding uh, in a way that suits your horse, it's really easy. You don't think about it. It's a no brainer, right. and you just kind of do it. And it's horses are fed. That's done. They've had the minerals, fine. And then they on the track, and then they go out. It's just so easy, um, and it's rewarding because you don't have to worry about things that previously used to completely stress you. Out. Right. Right. So it's a bit like if you can get into the habit of, you know, if you have to, if you've had a really poor diet and you have to make the effort to get yourself into a healthier way of eating for us initially for the first month or so, it might be a pain, but then it becomes a breeze and you're just, you, 
you know, it's easy, you're in a routine, you feel better, it's nice and straightforward. Well, and the gut actually, you know, the, I mean, the more you learn about the gut and the microbes in the gut, it drives you to eat the things you shouldn't eat because the, the microbes are demanding it and it takes time to switch them over. So I can see why some horses would be like, um, somebody's asking if it's... Yeah, and again, you see, that's why... Go ahead. I was just going to say that's why biodiversity in your forage is so important because you can imagine if you think about all that we know about our microbiome and then you think about the horse's microbiome and the massive amount of horse gut compared to our relatively yeah. you know, short gut. Um, if you think about feeding a horse monoculture forage, so forage that's just ryegrass or just timothy grass, it's completely insane. What, I mean, what do we think it's doing to their microbiome and their overall health? Completely insane. Anyway. Right. Um, somebody's asking any kind of special salt. Is salt all salt salt? No, I, I, I'm sure there are differences. I'm sure you could be a salt connoisseur, but I just chuck supermarket salt at them. I'd love Great. to say it's, you know, organic, refined, pure Exmoor rock salt, but it's not. It's Sainsbury's bog standard table salt. Salt. Yep. Just good old rock salt. Um, and uh, you're not using iodized salt, are you? Because then you're. So then no, I'm not using. I'm not using plain salt. salt. Although we do need iodine for humans, and that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, but again, you should be getting that if you're feeding. If you're feeding a general balancer for your area, it should be covering things like iodine. If right. you're if you're in an area that's low in it, it should right. be dealing with that. Uh, Nick, this has been awesome. This is exactly the talk I need to hear. Uh, I'm going out to buy magnesium <laughs> to, today. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me again. It's, it's really not, it's really none of this is difficult. It's, you know, it's really simple, basic principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Somebody just said thanks a million for oh, putting the pieces together in the puzzle. Absolutely, with the soreness. That's, you know, for me, that was a huge piece, this magnesium piece. And um, yeah, it yeah. really is. It's like a light bulb. It's, and it's, it's so easy to sort out. It's great. Yeah, great. So thank you everybody for joining us. Just remember, you can see this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Just subscribe to the channel. You'll get a notice every time we put up another webinar. Um, we're going to get Jillian Kreinbring back. We had a really bad thunderstorm last night and it knocked my internet out like at the time we were supposed to start the webinar. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'll send out an email or we'll post it on Facebook. Probably the fastest, easiest way is to have it to look on Facebook and we'll get that out to you. And just thank you again, Nick. This, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, I've really enjoyed both of your, your talks.